when you're running in Colorado and the Rockies and, and other places in the U.S., I think the allure is that you are in wilderness and there's places like I just ran uh, the Mummy Range. So that's an FKT I did in uh, near Estes Park, Rocky Mountain National Park. And there's no trail. There's no one out there. If you fall and break your leg, no one's going to find you. There's no helicopters flying around to rescue people. It's crazy. Before we get into the show, I want to tell you about the new running apparel company, Path Projects. Our team at Fastest Known Time has been using their shorts and liners for months, and Peter Backwin's wife, Stephanie, said they're literally the best-looking shorts she's ever seen them in. Besides the good looks, all Path Project shorts have a separate shorts and base liner system, which means the liner stays in place and wicks away moisture while the short rides independently. This eliminates all chafing. The baseliners come in three fabrics and four lengths. This allows you to dial in a baseliner based on weather conditions and personal preference. Path Projects sells direct to consumer from their website, pathprojects.com, not at retail, so they're able to source cutting edge fabrics without marking up the cost to you. Visit pathprojects.com and thanks to Path Projects for supporting fastestknowntime.com and this podcast. Thank you. Thank you again for joining the Fastest Known Podcast where we're practicing physical distancing but social intimacy. Indeed, that is the case right now. I'm talking with a person from Boulder, Colorado, who's a little different than the previous guests we've had this past month. I'm speaking with a perfect person for the fastest known podcast, one of the fastest known runners around, Mr. Andy Wacker. Welcome, Andy. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, that was a brief introduction, but gosh, we can, we can go into a lot more detail than that because uh, you really are a fast guy. We're going to talk about that in a minute, but just for context, last week we talked with Nick, Petitella, and Ryan on their Miller to Birth and Pass, which is you know, two days nonstop. Before that, we had an Eco Challenge special. And then three weeks before that, Courtney DeWalter, we even talked about Big's Backyard Ultra, where she she ran 169 miles nonstop. Yeah, crazy stuff. <laughs> and Kelly Halpin, the Wind River High Route, which was a little over two days. And Damian Hall and John Kelly, episode 96 and 97, doing uh, three days in the Pennine Way. Now we're talking with you, and you're you're kind of in the, we're kind of on the other end of this, aren't you? Yeah, definitely. No uh, three day uh, runs for me. I prefer probably two hours or less for a lot of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. This is how we want to mix it up. So we're going to get into this in a second, but just so people know, and they can of course go to the written show notes where your outstanding bio will be in the written show notes. But just on FKT land, you have 12 FKTs here, and you know, which is not easy to achieve. Most of them are in the Boulder area, but the most recent one on September 1st was Lick Skillet Road. Yeah. <laughs> I know this. I know the Lick Skillet Road. Got to so. love the name. <laughs> That's a good point. I didn't think of that. I mean, it's one of the good things about living in Boulder, isn't it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. So the lick skillet goes from uh, left hand up to Gold Hill. Gold Hill literally is the name of the town. And lick skillet is mega steep. So this, this is a little different. This is one mile long. So tell us how that mile went. Yeah, so lick skillet, oh, my gosh. Um, that one in particular is probably like... It's, it's miserable. It's really painful. <laughs> so that one's interesting, like you're saying, because it's, it's one of the shortest things I've done. I, I'd say it's, for me, it's more of like a really hard workout. And uh, I think when I got the FKT, it was probably my third attempt this summer of doing that. Um, oh, so you tried it three times. Yeah, I, w- I would say I probably never gave it a real good attempt until, uh, until the day I got it. But uh, I went out there a couple times over the summer and I, here's a good story. I, I was particularly, I was thinking about getting it. I just done another run in Rocky mountain national park. I live pretty close to lick skillet. So it's on my way home oh. and I'm like, okay, I'm going to come back. I'm going to do one hill repeat, just one hill repeat up like skillet up the 750 feet in one mile. Um, and so I get there, I park and I'm warming up and I am dreading it because <laughs> I know how bad it's going to hurt. Um, 
because it's it's just 100% cardio. It's just like racing a mile on the track or something like that. Um, but yeah, that day I remember I wimped out basically. So I warmed up, uh, I ran down the, the road easy, and then uh, I just wasn't mentally ready for the challenge. So yeah, it's a cool one to do, but it's it's definitely really painful. Well, it gained 750 feet in one mile. Yeah, it's a granny gear. <laughs> granny. Well, I'm in Michigan right now, and there's sand dunes here. So I'm going to add some sand dunes. And I should note to listeners that a route, minimum route, has to be at least five miles or 500 feet of elevation gain. This obviously isn't five miles, but at 750 feet of gain, that puts it in the minimum standard. And it's sort of a classic. And again, for the listeners' benefit, we don't put up any old route that comes along. It has to have some classic nature to it, some repeatability, something that other folks are going to want to do. And indeed, do you know Justin Grunwald? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I know I know of him. We've never met, but uh, we've had some interesting interactions because, yeah, we've been, uh, he's been in the Boulder area and we've been going after the same things. Right. Um, yeah, but go ahead. Sorry, I have a good story with that, too. That you do because, uh, oh my gosh, he even mentioned your name. So I mentioned you were the first person to go under nine minutes on this on September 1st. He broke it by seven seconds the same day. Yep. Yeah, so there's a little bit of a history, which is kind of the, the beauty of, of FKTs. So uh, let's say in June this year, it might have been or somewhere around that time, I did a 21-mile run on um, – gold hill so i ran out and back on gold hill and the last mile i did was up lick skillet just to add on that huge hill um and at that time i think i ran something like 10 and a half minutes and that was probably one of the faster times on strava at the time then uh, a good friend of mine named dan feeney him and a couple of his buddies decided to put on kind of an unofficial race up lick skillet and that's when it became an fkt and so they went really hard dan got the fkt roughly nine and a half minutes. And then uh, Justin said it probably about a month later, middle of the summer, right at just over nine minutes. And so it's been on my radar the whole summer because I was like, you know, I have to go and, and put a good effort in this. Um, and so, yeah, like a couple weeks ago, I went for it, um, finally broke that nine minute barrier, ran up it, was dying, you know, heart rate 200 the whole way. And this was roughly 10 in the morning. And uh, I'm submitting the FKT, and I get a little notification on my email from uh, Strava and from FKT that uh, Justin had just beat my time. And so he did it 4 p.m. the same day. A couple hours later, he came back. He said, no way, Andy, you're not going to get it. <laughs> so, well, he um, came through on Strava. It's like, uh, what is it? what's the wording on that? You've lost your, what is it? I forgot what they say. I've lost I know. I turned off those notifications so because it's it's funny it gets so competitive but uh yeah it's really fun to go back and forth and really see what you can do as a person or and how you know what people can do on the route so now that Justin's got it back I think I'm gonna have to you know rest up and pick a day when I can beat his time um but yeah it's not over (laughs) his trip report mentioned you a set his last sentence is uh I bet Andy won't let this last long (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so this, it fun. this is really fun. This is the other end of the spectrum, as we started off the show by noting. So instead of the you know, Appalachian Trail or these two or three day efforts, this is the flat out, just hit it, punch it. So like you said, if you, if, to get his 847 back, to beat that, you're going to have to get at a race level effort. You can't just show up. You're going to have to go warm up for like 15 minutes, run some striders, won't you? Oh, yeah. And I did that the last time. So it's not like uh, this was just an easy effort before. It was as hard as I could go. So it's, yeah, it's getting interesting because at some point uh, it's fun when you have these back and forths. And um, it's fun to go out there even if you fail just to see what's possible. Good point. Excellent point. So listeners, you can go on to the website and look up. Andy Wacker and see his 12 FKTs and track them all down. But I'll give a little more background here is that you were a two-time All-American 
across country at the famous University of Colorado, coached by Mark Wetmore. Yep, yep. That was a really big deal for me, obviously. Um, it's really cool being part of that team and that history. And um, Yeah, I kind of went from basically walk-on to All-American, like a lot of people at CU, and I think that's just a testament to Mark's coaching. And Yeah, right. it was cool to be part of a team. We never won a championship. I missed uh, some of those, those uh, national title teams by year on either end, but we got some good results so it's it fun to be part of that team but you were a walk-on that's cred i'd show you were ready to work <laughs> yeah i mean uh definitely you know and it's hard to compare when you have so many talented people uh, you know it's not like i didn't have decent high school credentials but you know i was running with some of the best people in the country ever so <laughs> <laughs> so here's a side question to that what did you think of the book running with the buffaloes yeah, I read the book. I thought it was awesome. It's kind of funny when you – I read it when I was in college at CU, I believe. So I hadn't read it going into the program or anything like that. I was kind of naive. Um, well, maybe you would have tried out some team if you read the book first. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was I was a um, recruited walk-on. So I started college on the team. But uh, – so, yeah, it's definitely part of the team right, right away. But um, – I remember an interesting conversation was I was asking Mark Wetmore about the book and he said he never read it because he's like, it's when you, you listen to a recording of your voice and it sounds weird. He was saying, he's using that as an analogy. He's like, I don't want to see this like twisted reflection of my program. So it's funny. So Mark Wetmore, as, as far as I know, has never read that book. Well, thank you for that insider tip. I did not know that. Okay. Well, the book kind of follows Adam Goucher with his, uh, well, I don't want to say this right now, he's never read it, but his, his attempt to win the championship in his last year at CU. It follows the team in great detail for one season through injuries, trials, and tribulations. So it's, uh, I think it's a good book. Yeah, it's awesome. And it's, uh, it's funny because it's got all these, like, things that are connected to Boulder. And even if you live here and you're not part of the university, you're not part of the program, um, you can appreciate and you know any any runner can actually appreciate a lot of those uh, stories about just the, the goofy things that happen and the challenges and pushing yourself to those extremes right and on the verge of injury and sometimes going past the verge of injury yeah interesting stuff so you got you got leg speed obviously so did you why this is a dumb question I guess I'm setting you up with this one, Andy. I was going to say, which I think you're going to probably say yes to, do you feel that those years of intense training, particularly with the interval training, so you really have that VO2 max, you have that ability to maintain form while running all out, do you think this has helped you in your trail racing career? Yeah, you did set me up. I mean, yeah, I think so. But uh, a quote comes to mind. Here's some more quotes from other people so joe gray who's a two-time world champion in mountain running really accomplished runner he has a similar background to me too he ran at university of oklahoma um he was a fast steeplechaser and you know now he's a trail world champion um i think he said something like you got to put in the time to do you got to be road fit track fit first and then you can start to be trail fit and so I think that's, yeah, I think there's something to that. You gotta, you gotta get cardiovascular fitness by all those years. I did fast, you know, five K's and 10 K's on the track. And I still do a lot of road racing every year. Um, but then I build off, uh, get sharp on my skills. Yeah. Right. Well, this is, you're, you're hitting on a topic that's, uh, I've editorialized on before, which is the onset of ultra running. Ultra running kind of took over the scene here in the United States. It spread from here around the world. And I think it was harmful, in a sense, to the sport, which is sort of a controversial thing to say, since I was an ultra runner. What happened is this infatuation with big. America likes big, big houses, big cars. And so we like those big distances, which is great. Which is, you know, it's certainly fine. But someone would go for that early on before they learned good running form 
And so they became a jogger, right? Again, this is terrific. This is all good stuff. But personally, I would like to see people develop good running form, you know, good, efficient cardiovascular running form, and then move up in the distance, keeping that form going. I think that would serve us a little bit better because what we did see, not so much now, we most of our guys now have good track and road speed, like Jim Walmsley, obviously. But for a while there, 10 years ago, we didn't. And so we would go over to Europe and just get crushed. You know, yeah. the mile would go off and people would be 200 meters back after one mile. Uh, but I think it's coming around now. So I, I appreciate your comment and Joe's comment. You know, I think it's interesting, though. I, I, um, I agree with you in your statement, but I think there's like there's something to learn from these two different camps and I'm always stuck in this world between people because I, I have a lot of friends who just run road marathons or just run professionally on the track um, and then I have friends who are just trail runners and I'm kind of this guy who does it all and I'm always this person who kind of has like I feel like I'm the only one seeing this perspective from both sides um, but yeah it's really interesting because like I think you're right like people need to have this organized professionalism that's in the track and field world and in the road running world in trails to do well. And I think you're right. Like people like Jim, Jim's extremely organized and precise and like he knows everything that he's doing. And I think that helps him. And like his training isn't just like haphazard. Um, but then at the same time, there's a lot of road runners who get burnt out and get sick of running because they're just doing the same marathon buildup year after year after year and they're getting injured and they're tired and it's like their workouts are the same month in and month out. So I think there's something to learn from like the like surfer mentality of trail running and just like taking it easy and having fun. And then the like professionalism of track and field. That's a really good point. I like it. The surfer mentality. Indeed, be a solo runner. That's the term. Yeah. To be a soul surfer that came out of the surfing sport where people went for the prize money and the Billabong World Championships, things like that. But then there was the soul surfers who just were out there every day, being in the water. Um, and that's definitely an aspect of what, a mountain ultra and trail, where you you don't even care about the competition. That's really not what you're in it for. Instead of bringing along a watch, you're bringing along a camera. So that's a very good point. I like that, Andy. Thanks, yeah. Yeah, interesting. Because, speaking for myself, wow, yeah, marathon training, wow. Marathon, in my opinion, is the hardest race. Uh, because it's just full on the whole time. And you have to have this combination of skills. You have to have the endurance, the stamina, the leg speed, the intensity, you have to have it all. And the, what you call the methodicalism, would just be brutal for my personality type. I mean, I, I, can manage it, I can manage six weeks, but that's what they do. They have these two-year training plans to ramp up for a big event. Oh, or longer. I mean, a lot of people focus on the four-year Olympic cycle. So, yeah, it's yeah. You got to be patient. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, you get injured, and or you come into your your, your goal race in the case of the flu it's uh, it's a harsh sport yeah exactly a lot of those pro, pro marathoners do maybe one or two races a year and it's like if you blow it it's a lot of pressure a lot of pressure not to blow it on that one chance you get way way but now you've made a like you just said a really nice graduation world mountain running long distance championships you were second third and fifth in the world at that. And you went to the World Mountain Running uh, Championships, which are held in a different country each year. Haven't been in the United States for a while, although the long distance were Pikes Peak. So tell us a little bit about that, because a lot of people don't know about that. Again, uh, the U.S. focus tends to be around ultra running, but there's this whole scene happening out here. When was it? Like five years ago, I got, finally got roped in, uh, reeled into the IAAF. And so the World Mount Running Championships are a real thing, and they could go to the Olympics at some point. So give us a little perspective on the uh, World Mount Running Championships. 
Yeah, sure. So um, I'm like very invested in this. I'm a huge fan. So yeah, I think it's a good point because um, I think my perspective is the same that um, in the US, I feel like we're a little bit obsessed with the 100 mile race. And that's what people think of when they think of trail running. And there's nothing wrong with that because I think that's an amazing race and there's like so much to it. You know, Western states, these kind of races are iconic. But it doesn't mean that there aren't shorter races that are meaningful. And so, yeah, the pinnacle of that in my mind is world mountain running. World mountain running is typically uh, a 10K race, so it's only six miles. Um, and every other year it's a different format. So it's either uphill and then uh, every other year it's an up-down. And the cool thing about mountain running is it is like the fastest, most extreme version of trail running. You know, that's why it's mountain. So to kind of put that in perspective, it's it's 10K, but you're screaming up and down a whole ski area twice, something like that. So uh, the speed and the shortness makes you take chances that you typically wouldn't in a longer race, like something <laughs> like a UTMB. Yeah, and so that technicality really gets brought out. I think that's what makes it exciting. It's kind of like, uh, you know, imagine running on a trail and super fast forward. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely a really cool race. In Europe, I think, you know, you get a lot more uh, prestige. People care about it. People think about it more. Right. Um, so that's world mountain running. And then just to clarify, there's there's two different world championships. One's 10K. That's called world mountain running. Um, and then there's something that uh, needs to have a better name. It's called the World Mountain Running Long Distance Championships, which is basically needs to be renamed something like the uh, Trail Marathon Championships because it's typically around a marathon and distance. Um, and again, it has this mountain aspect. It's not a flat trail ever. It's going to be something like, um, you know, Pikes Peak was an example. So uh, running up and down Pikes Peak or other examples and, and uh that I've run have been the Zermont Marathon, which is kind of less technical, but you're going all the way up thousands and thousands of feet in the Swiss Alps. Um, so yeah, lots of cool races that aren't necessarily hundred milers. Right. Uh, and again, like you just said, the, the U.S. people aren't that familiar with it. Well, in Europe, it's a big deal. They and one thing I particularly like. Well, let's just get into this a little bit. This is this is a fascinating topic. On one hand, really, it's way more competitive. I mean, certainly, like you say, you win states, you're you won a big race. You win some of the bigger hundred miles, you win a big race. The TNF fifty, uh, which actually just stopped doing in San Francisco, but these aren't that competitive compared with world mountain. These, like you said, every country in the world can do something is there, and they're throwing down. <laughs> and you've been to them that when the gun goes off, it's like being at a track race. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's really hard to like say this without being offensive. And a lot of people say it in different ways. Like I would, I would say it's it's hard to say it's more competitive or something different like that. But um, you know, the nature of it is the UTMBs, the the Western states, the Hard Rocks, because it's such a long, grueling race. There's probably three competitive professional athletes that are kind of in the hunt for the win. And those guys are incredible and they're specialists and they're amazing at what they do. Um, but yeah, when you're doing something that's um, like the world mountain running championships, it's a lot more guys, <laughs> you know, the depth, the depth is there. It's more like uh, NCAA cross country, which is, you know, there's 300 people that could win the race and they're all extremely good. They're all professional level. Um, and they'll have, you know, lots of merits to their names. Um, yeah, and they, they bring it, and they make it really intense. And so it's it's really cool to, to be part of that because um, kind of my experience like last year. So last year I ran, it was in Patagonia in Argentina. I was running the 10K, it's an up-down. And if you make one little mistake, you get passed by five people. And so <laughs> I think that's like, that's the difference. You know, if you, if you bonk and in one of these longer races, there's kind of a little bit more margin of error for error because there's not the depth, but when there's the depth like that and the race is short, there's no, there's, you can't do anything. You can't trip. You can't hit an obstacle wrong. You gotta, you gotta do it perfectly. And that's kind of what makes it exciting. In a hundred mile, you can come back from the dead. 
<laughs> yeah, there's a little bit more time. And I, I know now, I mean, I think our sport, all of trail running is getting more and more competitive. So there's, you know, sometimes that can happen. But yeah, there's, it's exaggerated with these shorter races. Right. As you mentioned, Joe Gray, what a guy. We've mentioned, or actually, I've mentioned you on the podcast a few times before. The best, by far the best runner that no one's ever heard of, by far. I mean, Joe is you know, the best mountain runner the United States has ever produced, and few people have actually heard of him. He lives in Colorado Springs, as you well know, and he won the world championships for the second time in Argentina. Yeah, that was really cool because, uh, again, the, the format for that short race, the 10K race, it changes every year. So Joe won in 2016 um, in Bulgaria, and this was just like a high-altitude, straight-uphill I think it was something like four or five thousand feet of gain in a 10k so joe won that year um but then last year he comes back and we're in patagonia and it's this extremely muddy through the trees literally river crossings up to our waist with ice cold glacier water wow. and he wins that race too so it's really different conditions and it just shows what a good athlete he is you know beating people who are specialists and up down these kind of guys who could just bomb downhills at ridiculous pace and they're leaping logs and taking turns and just doing incredible things and he's uh he was the best which is, it's really cool to see that happen um in those different conditions i am actually surprised because joe is an uphill specialist and as you said the alternate years that by the way this goes back i think 35 years that was a compromise between the brits and the italians by uh-huh. Alternates. But Joe was not a downhill guy, so to win the up-down year, that's saying something. Yeah, I think so. I mean, yeah, it's always funny when you say stuff like, yeah, he's not a specialist. And we're just kind of nitpicking at this level because people are so good at certain things. Um, and they def- you definitely do specialize at some level. But, I mean, to be as good as Joe or to be someone who can compete in these year after year, you have to be just good at everything. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, Joe's Joe's definitely one of the best uphillers anyone's ever seen. You know, he can he's beaten Killian, he's beaten a lot of these big names in uphill races. Um, but yeah, he's he's not too shabby on the downhill. <laughs> well, you know, the best uphiller ever. But let's see if we're thinking of the same person in world mountain running. Give me a name, Jonathan Wyatt. Boom. <laughs> yeah, Jono, that guy, New Zealand Kiwi, and. I think he ran the Olympics for New Zealand in Athens that year. But he went, won the World Mountain Running Championships five times, but generally in the uphill years. And he often couldn't win the up-down years. Yep, exactly, yeah. So that's like what you're saying where uh, you get to a certain level, and uh, that's kind of interesting when you have different races. So having the world championships in a different place every year does make a difference. And it's really cool to see like, how does the terrain suit certain people? And uh, so for example, I've been in, there's this guy, um, um, I think his name's Alessandro Rombaldini. He's got a great Italian name. And uh, this guy's won a couple of the long distance championships in the last few years. And it's typically because there's a, technical you know six ish mile downhill at the end of this trail marathon race and this guy is an incredible downhiller and he's just like the best milers in the world he just knows when to kick so he waits he waits he waits and then blows people away on the downhill and to put it in perspective uh so joe gray and i were on a team for the long distance in poland uh 2018 so two years ago and it was up and down the tallest mountain in Poland. So Joe and I were good climbers, we're crushing it. We went up, you know, I'm in the lead on the first climb. I go down the first descent. On the first descent, I hit a 404 mile <laughs> on the downhill. And uh, so I'm still in the lead thanks to that mile. And then uh, Joe is with me on the second climb. Him and I are basically leading the, uh, we are leading the entire world championships on the second climb. So we're first and second. And we end up being third and fifth because Alessandro Rambaldini and a couple other guys are just so good at descending that they can compare and have a better downhill than Joe and I, who Joe, who's won a, a 
up down world champs and me who could run a 404 downhill mile on the same course so these guys are just incredible yeah when you run a 404 and you get passed <laughs> people are turning loose exactly yeah <laughs> well john i got a quote from him also actually my son was in new zealand a number of years ago he was at a barbecue which is what they do down there in new zealand and John was there and everyone's sitting around talking, you know, Gail and, you know, one pipes, peak marathon and things like that. And he recounted to me that they, when they're chatting it up, they say, so what's your 10K time? Right? That was the metric is your 10K time. Is that for their, from their perspective is how are you going to see how well you're going to do on the trails? Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, and I know Jono's got a really good 10K. I think he's like a 28.0 or a 27 high 10K, somewhere in that range. Um, yeah, and I think, like, again, this goes back to that Joe Gray quote about, like, you got to have the lungs from the, the track. You know, your aerobic fitness is going to be show up in that 10K. But uh, I know I know a lot of guys who are really fast road runners, and they would not do well on the trails, and they wouldn't do well in mountain running. And we've seen a lot of people fail, so... Right. Uh, a couple people that come to mind are like Ben Bruce. He's an incredible road runner. He ran the the U.S. Mountain Running Champs a few years ago, and he got he got blown away. And it's just because there's some there's something that's about translating that speed and being able to go uphill or go over terrain um, efficiently. And not everyone can do it. And it's I think it's definitely part of it's a skill and part of it's a mindset. And uh, maybe there's even an X factor beyond those two things because. It takes a lot, you know, and, and not everyone can, can just magically go from being the best 10K to being the best trail racer. Um, not, yeah. So. Right. And basically, you have the turnover. I mean, it's, it's usually about, if you don't have turnover, you're kind of hopeless. You kind of have to start with that. But other than that, after that, yeah, you have to have the technical ability and you have to have that power. You're not just uh, Z. I met him in person one time. You know, he had that great quote about pretend there's a string attached to your head and your feet are just lightly tapping down, just turning it over, turning it over, which is brilliant. But if you're grinding up the hill with rock, it's not the best imagery. Something else is required. Yeah, it's so different. And I think uh, what's coming to my mind is so almost every year recently, I do two main seasons. I do a road season that's kind of like January until June. And then I do a trail season from June until January. And uh, that transition going from road speed to the mountains, it's not pretty. (laughs) So last year I was in uh, probably the best shape I've ever been in. I have to look it up, but I think I got seventh at the US 25K road champs, something like that. So competing with some of the best road racers in America um, who are all basically training for fast marathons, training for the Olympic trials, those kind of things. And I ran Zagama, which is a pretty, pretty technical. Yeah, exactly. And that was, I think, two or three, three weeks later, maybe. Uh, the U.S. 25K champs is in May. It's in early May in Grand Rapids, uh, Michigan. And then, um, yeah, so I flew out and went to, went to Zagama in Spain. And, oh, my gosh, it's almost the worst because you have – I had the engine to push myself and I was uh, neck and neck with Killian. So I was getting pushed for sure. Um, but it is just like almost the worst because you can grind, you can keep your heart rate at such a high level, but that, uh, that feeling of going uphill, that grinding it's, it's hard. And so, uh, yeah, it's not a hundred percent the same. And I think there's definitely like a, a, a nice transition, a nice thing where it, what happens where you change that, form from being completely flat and efficient and gliding over the roads to being able to lift your knees and be powerful like you're saying and push down and climb hard and uh and not blow up in a longer race like Sagama. wow Sagama. and you you mentioned I mean, killian doesn't actually want to race he kind of wants to just do fkts but as a sponsored athlete he has to show up at the races and make a showing for his sponsor Zagama is the one of the races he always does because it's that good. You're, you're going up. It's like the Tour de France. You're watching it on TV when there's you know 50 million people forming this tunnel around you. You're climbing up Mount Van Two. It's like that as a comma. There's there's a tunnel of people yelling at you. 
Yeah, it's incredible. I think it, this is like where there's this disconnect between American trail running and European trail running. Because, like, when I was running Zagama, you hit these tunnels of people like you're talking about. And let me try to recreate this if I can. Yeah. Like, this imagery that I can't forget is basically like you're running through the woods, it's quiet, there's kind of no one there. Uh, you know, I'm near Killian, one of the most famous runners, you know, even roadrunners who never know anything about trails know Killian. And we get to this tunnel of people on Sanctuary Spiritu, that big climb. And the first thing is you just deafening noise. And then I'm getting close and there's a person holding their dog on a leash and the dog is just sprinting to the edge of the leash, pulling back and forth. It's like being in like a battle scene. All of a sudden people are screaming and chain like shaking their arms and cowbells and once you get in that's before you get to the the, into the crowd of people and then once you get into the crowd of people it was literally so loud you stop hearing people's voices and you just hear ringing in your ears that's how loud it was and so it's terrifying yeah it's great it's really motivating to help you go up the hill but yeah zakama is really cool experience as a pro runner and it's just it's got to be a cool experience as a fan too just to be able to go out there and really see um all the athletes you you know you love on your home turf going on the, these incredible mountains in Spain. Wow, what a thanks for <laughs> thanks for sharing that, Andy. That's a, that's a good one. There, there's a contrast between the the Euro and the Yankee scene. It's so different. We got wilderness, you know, Hard Rock 100. Hard Rock is one of the best courses in the world. Period. End of discussion. That's why Killian likes to come over and do it. And it's wilderness, and 165 people are allowed to do it. We kind of have that ethic. Even states, Western States 100, which is in California, you're out there by yourself. You might not see anyone for 30 minutes. In Europe, not so much so. It's uh, it's a race. It's not a wilderness experience. Now you're on great terrain. You're in the Alps or somewhere. But these are these are these are wonderful contrasts. I think, like you've already said. Equal, separate, but equal. Yeah, I think there's a lot to that. It's, it's interesting, too, when you talk about wilderness, because there's something I always notice when I run in Europe and train in Europe. If you go to somewhere like Switzerland, I love the trails. They're all smooth. They're like a 1,000 years old. They're packed down, and it's it's just butter. You know, it's like running on these flowy these flowy trails. And uh, I like it because I have, I have a fast guy, like you're saying, and I like the... I like being able to get as much vert as quickly as I can and those kind of things, and it suits me well. But when you're running in Colorado and the Rockies and, and other places in the U.S., I think the allure is that you are in wilderness. And there's places, like I just ran uh, the Mummy Range. So that's an FKT I did in uh, near Estes Park, Rocky Mountain National Park um, in Colorado. And there's no trail. There's no one out there. If you fall and break your leg, no one's going to find you. There's no helicopters flying around to rescue people. I mean... There's, it's crazy. And uh, here's a cool little quick story. Sorry, just going on a tangent here. But so I'm doing the mummy range. You're off trail for a chunk of 20 miles. And uh, you're just rock hopping. And I'm at the top of Mummy Peak. It's the last peak on this uh, FKT that you, you, you do the whole range. You do six summits. And I'm coming down, and I'm going down these rocks that are probably about the size of a Oh, they're big boulders. They're probably like half a car, you know? So you're kind of jumping down one to, one to the next or three foot drop. And I see a bear <laughs> and there's a bear, which is above tree line, which is pretty crazy. Um, and it's just hanging out in the rocks. <laughs> so again, you're totally by yourself. And the bear just looks at me and it walks away and it goes, hides under a rock. And that was it. <laughs> you just keep going. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's a cool peacefulness that you don't find um, in Europe. Those trails are established, but here it's it's wild. Excellent story. You don't see a lot of bears. In no, the you don't see a lot of anything. You don't see. You see a couple birds. It's uh, I I get the feeling they like overhunted or something happened. But yeah, that feeling of wilderness is um, is missed when I uh, when I leave Colorado and go to Europe. Well, Boulder did a triathlon. Still does a triathlon. Before the Ironman triathlon came, there's a half Ironman, and you, of course, are familiar with Old Stage Road. That was on the course, and people had to break severely coming down Old Stage for a bear crossing the road. And that's just in a triathlon. Yeah, road nice. I live, yeah, I live right in that area, so I could definitely get that. <laughs> the mummy, 
Luke, I said, you must have started off at the uh, Chapman Pass since you did a, you didn't finish the you, you dropped down, you came down the Long Lake Trailhead and, and down to Fall River Road and stopped the clock down there? Uh, yeah, I did the, I did um, the variation where you start and end at Lawn Lake, so a lot, a little bit more climbing and a lot more uh, off trail because there's, there's not much trail that connects that, uh, those first summits. Gotcha. So you, you did close, yep, the, close loop. the loop. And it's, you, I mean, you got to, right? Yeah. If I'm just driving myself, <laughs> it's hard to, um, oh my gosh, Buzz, I got a good story for you. I got too many stories. But uh, so Mummy Range was one of the first runs I ever did as a trail runner. So I graduated, I might've been in NCU still, I can't remember. Might've been uh, over the summer, maybe like my before my senior year at CU. Um, and I went to go do Mummy Range, roughly uh, 16, 18 miles, something like that, if you start on Old Fall River Road, like you're talking about. And I did the whole loop, did all the peaks. I was really proud of myself coming back down. And the plan was I would have to hitchhike because the start and finish are approximately six miles apart. And so I get down to the very end and I make a wrong turn, typical. <laughs> and I end up running all the way to Estes Park, which is way out of the way. We're talking like something like eight miles down the trail. And I realized I was going the wrong way, you know, into this. But I was like, well, I need to run to a road so I can hitchhike back to my car. And so I start to finally get to Estes Park all the way to the town. I'm trying to hitchhike no one's picking me up and I'm so frustrated because it's all these retired people who are just driving by it's crowded in the summer I'm like come on someone's got to give me a ride <laughs> and uh no one picks me up and then finally a police officer pulls over and he tells me it's illegal to hitchhike in Estes Park <laughs> and so I'm like oh man I got to get to my car it's like 15 miles away I just ran for all day you know I took hours I'm probably over 20 miles of running and uh, so he gives me a ride. But then the funny part is I have to, <laughs> the police in Estes Park can't give you a ride into the national park. So he had to drop me off at the national park. And so I had to hitchhike again. Um, so it ended up taking uh, two, two hitchhiking trips to get back to my car. I was so exhausted by the end of the day. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> wow. Better you than me. I would not have been a happy oh, guy. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was... I. I was probably pretty upset. But anyway, so it was good retribution because that was probably like 2012 or something. And now I came back this year, 2020, and uh, did the loop. No hitchhiking this time because I decided to start and finish in the same spot. No wrong turns. And uh, it, was, it was really cool to do it. So it's nice to be back. Well done. Well done. You're fit. I have to confess, I've never done the loop. I start at the Champion Pass. Then you get to cruise the Mummy Range, right? You're up top. That's my favorite part. You charge down Lawn Lake, I hitchhike back up. Jeff. Yeah, it's a good way to do it. It's not. There's no wrong way to do it. It's pretty cool to be up on those ridges. Okay. Right. Well, good for you. That's a good start to your trail running career. Getting schooled. I think that's the best start to anything. Is when you get totally. Oh schooled. yeah, you got to make all the mistakes. I think that's part of it, and I think uh, yeah, it makes for good stories and makes you tough and makes you appreciate the good days. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you've, you've had a few good days here. I mean, this is fun. Now, one thing I met, maybe I didn't do the proper research. In Colorado, of course, for you, I would think Pikes Peak would be right there on your list. I didn't see that in the bio you submitted me, but you, you've assuredly have done Pikes Peak. I've yeah, I've done the ascent uh, four times, I think. So I've gotten, I've never won Pikes Peak. That's the goal. Um, you know, it's a huge, huge thing for me. So I've got a lot of Pikes Peak stories, but essentially to wrap it up, it would be. First time I ran Pikes Peak, the Ascent, it was the World Championships in 2014. Um, so I was running for Team USA. I went out on record pace, which is insane for that uh, course, because that record by Matt Carpenter, 201, is just unbeatable. Killian was minutes off yet last year, for for instance, for other people just to understand how good this is. Um, and I ended up totally blowing up and bonking. You know, this was one of my longest races at the time. Um, I blew up with about a mile to go. So I made it 12 miles feeling great on record pace. And I blew up. Um, I ended up getting third cause I walked it in and, uh, it was, it was still a great day cause Sage Canada won the world championships and team USA won. So that was really cool. Uh, but yeah, that was my initiation by fire and Pikes Peak ascent. And then. Wow. If you, 
if you blow up with only a mile to go, that's actually not yeah, that exactly. Bad. But yeah, it's it was uh, a lot of real painful walking, but uh, luckily I was pretty close to the finish. Um, and yeah, and then since then I've gotten second to Joe Gray, second to another guy, and uh, this year I got third in the marathon. So um, it's cool. I've had some experience on that mountain, and it's it's amazing when you get you know eight thousand feet of vert. That prominence is pretty unusual anywhere in the world so it's pretty cool to to be able to race on it right we talk about the alps but no oh, nothing is nothing like pike's peak and that's in the bar trail is completely runnable this isn't a scramble you're not crossing the glacier the bar trail is, is uh, that decomposed granite the whole way it's really nice yeah definitely yeah i think it's it's a cool thing to do and it's uh especially with the altitude yeah the Europeans are starting to come over with the Solomon Golden Trail series being held on uh, part of it's at Pikes Peak. So I think it's it's really cool that that race is getting more and more competitive and it's got an awesome history and there's a reason for it. It's it's an awesome place. Right. And you mentioned uh, good old Matt. Man, I should have Matt. Come, wow. I should get Matt on this podcast. There's a few stories. I like that. <laughs> to get him out of his custard shop down there in Manitou Springs. I can't get him out. That'll never happen. I'll have to go down to his custard shop in Manitou Springs. <laughs> uh, but like you say, when you look at the times, and the Killian on his second time, you know, I mean, 327 super fast, but he's well off Matt's course record. Yeah, definitely. So hopefully uh, he'll keep going after it because, like I said, I think that's a theme I've learned recently. It's like there's something about repetition and uh, that pursuit of, of perfection and figuring out what that is. And I think as a professional athlete or any runner, I think we're doing it at different levels. And so I think that's, that's awesome. Well, Matt was beyond focus, as you know. Yeah, living, focus, on, living on the mountain. Focus, <laughs> yeah. no, focus does not describe me. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, what, what's next? For Andy Wacker, he's uh, you're wrapping up trail season, which, which might need more FKTs, uh, back to roads. What's what's the look yeah, like? Yeah, I'm uh, getting near the end of my trail season. I got some big hitters still coming. So for me, um, as long as nothing changes and they're still on, we got the U.S. Trail Half Marathon Championships uh, at the end of this month, so September 26th, I believe. Uh, so just a few weeks away. Those are in Wisconsin. Um, at the Berkey Trail, which is like a really cool cross-country ski trail. Yeah. Oh, yeah, really cool. I mean, it's named after the Sweden, the Birkebeiner in Sweden. And so Wisconsin exported the name, so to speak. Really nice. Yeah, trail. and I mean, it's that one's like, talk about trail running, why it's cool is you get these things that are like unusual and really distinctive for the place. So that trail is, I think they have two sets of it. One's for cross-country skiing, and one, sorry, one's for classic cross-country skiing, one's for skate skiing. But they're 50 kilometers long, 10-foot wide, basically, road of grass that they groom. Uh, so anyway, it's really cool because you get this, this really long, unusual, like, basically cross-country course to run on in summer and a 50K road to ski on in winter. So it's a really cool place for a championship. Nice. You'll be going to Wisconsin. How about the trail marathon championships, which are almost always held? Yep, in Moab, exactly. That's what I was going to bring up. So I got that. I got the half champs, and then I'm planning to run Moab. So two U.S. championships that may exist this year, which is really cool, given uh, you know the challenging circumstances to put on races. Um, it's really nice to have a few of them happen, especially if they can be put on in a safe and um, you know, respectful way. And that's, that's really awesome. So looking forward to those two to actually have some, uh, some races. A couple of podcasts ago, we had Danelle Ballinger, the race director for Moab. And of course she's a famous adventure racer. And that's why you have those three rope sections. That makes a lot more sense now. Yeah. What? Why are they doing these fixed ropes on a trail marathon? You know what I always tell people who are uh, have like a college running background or road running background? Whenever they do trail races, I basically tell them, you got to expect the unexpected. And I tell them like, it's basically what you're talking about <laughs> when you go into a trail race. Uh, one of my experiences was running the Trail 50K Champs in 
um, Tamalpa Headlands 50k near Marin. And at yeah. 26 miles into a 50k, I had to climb up a metal ladder over a boulder. And you, <laughs> you had to expect, you know, expect the unexpected. I wasn't expecting that. I was feeling pretty terrible at the time. And that's a rhythm breaker. But yeah, I think that's the mindset for trail racing. You always have to know there's going to be something weird. It might be your, uh, your biceps are cramping because you just bonked so hard. And it might be that there's a river that you didn't expect to cross that you're going to have to cross. It might be a ladder. It might be a rope. Yeah, it's kind of fun. <laughs> I've seen people crying at the end of the trail marathon championships. And not the people in the back of the pack. They have huge smiles. They had a great time. It's who are expecting to knock down, you know, six-minute miles. Yeah, definitely, yeah. Moab's a really fun, challenging course. It's got, like, it's just a grinder. It's got a little bit of everything, which makes it interesting. It's fast. It's got some ups and downs and uh, slick rock and sand. And you, you name it. You, it's got it. Andy, I wish you all the best. I've really enjoyed our conversation. It's really fun to talk to someone who's got this different perspective. I think it's good for everyone to stay in touch with the entire spectrum of running, right? Running is believing. That's all it is. No matter if you're doing a mile on the track or 200 miles out in the backcountry. Running's running. Yeah, that's that's a good way to put it. <laughs> I want to, uh, besides thanking you, thank all our listeners. Be sure to give us a review. Give us a five star if you liked it because that helps other people find us. We've got a lot of really nice feedback on the podcast. Really appreciate your comments. But put them in the review so other people can find us. That's kind of how that works. And we'll be back next week. Andy, I, I'm sure we'll be seeing your name pop up on our submissions list. Yeah, I've got to go get that lick, skill, and mile and a bunch of other ones. So thanks, Buzz, for having me.